Well, if you would, go ahead and stand with me as we open our Bibles to the book of Colossians. We'll read Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you with Paul for the Colossian believers and the opportunity that you've given us even in the way that they were made known to him to bring forth this word that comes from you. And Lord, as we prepare to go through this book, I pray that you would help us to understand the the position that Christ should hold, not only in our lives, but in the church. And Lord, let us express our recognition of Christ's position by the hope that we have laid up for us and the love that we have for the saints and the faith that we have in Christ. Lord, let us bear fruit in this way and let us learn from your word even as Pastor Wayne faithfully presents it before us. Let us learn it and live it such that the love for you is expressed in everything that we do, that others who believe in you will give thanks for our testimony. And Lord, we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, as we begin our study in Colossians last Sunday, uh, we learned that this is a letter written by the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul to a young church in the Lycus Valley of Asia Minor, that we call Turkey today. And at that time, this church was under attack from cultural elements as well as religious zealots. I mean, you've got the the Greek philosophy of Gnosticism that's beginning to to take hold. You've got Jewish zealots who claim that if you are a Jew, I don't care if you're a Christian or not, if you're a Jew, you must continue observing the feasts and the festivals that are found in the Old Testament, even though their purpose had been fulfilled in the coming of Christ. And so there were people who were infiltrating the church with this. And there were also those who were coming, claiming that certain fastings were essential for experiencing visions that would provide new revelation. There was also a a pagan folklore that was going around claiming that there were rites and taboos and rituals that were necessary to ward off evil spirits that would deliver you from physical afflictions. So these relatively new Christians, I mean, they're under attack from all of the stuff that is coming in because religion and philosophy, both of them, they struggle. They struggle with the simplistic words of Christ, it is finished. Religion doesn't like hearing that. They don't want to hear that there's nothing they can do to merit a right relationship with the Lord. And man's philosophies don't like hearing that. They don't want to hear that the word became flesh and revealed divine truth. 
because that makes all of their rationalistic, idealistic uh, theories obsolete. So neither philosophy nor religion, like on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. So there are critical issues that the Holy Spirit addresses through Paul to protect these Christians. Um, and I, I believe this is still necessary for us today, folks. We still see this in one form or another coming into the church. There are people who come to church here having gone other places and they bring some of these same ideas in here. And one of the issues they were having to deal with in that day was had to do with the deity of Christ. Because see, the philosophy of that day claimed that if Christ was incarnate in the flesh, he can't be God. He can't be. Because according to their theory, everything of the flesh is evil. And so he can't become flesh if he's truly God. The second issue had to do with our salvation as a result. If Christ is not fully God, then his death cannot satisfy the just wrath of a holy God. That's the reason that we must continue with these rituals and these, these festivals and all of these things that we must do that they believed would somehow or another grant them merit with God. We've got to do these things. A third issue had to do with the Christian life. They said, look, if you're truly right with God, it doesn't really matter how you live. That's why they could live immorally and still claim to be Christian. Because after all, the flesh is evil, right? What really matters, what really matters are your experiences that enable you to speak to angels and to see visions and to, to get new, new revelation fresh right there between you and God. And so to correct these lies, the Holy Spirit begins by identifying that this is written, look at verse 2, it's written to saints. That means these are people who are born again in Christ, so they are covered by his grace. Faithful brothers who are in Christ. And so here's the reason that Paul celebrates. Always giving thanks when he prays for this church. Why is it? He's heard something. He's heard about their faith, about their love, and about their hope. Do you realize that is a, is a triad expression that's found in every Christian life and it's found throughout the New Testament. Faith in Christ, love for the saints, and hope, hope laid up in heaven. Faith in Christ always works itself out how? James says, I'm going to show you my faith by my works. What will your works look like then, James? If you have faith in Christ, how will you love other people? He uses the word agape here. This is an unconditional, sacrificial love. Those who have faith in Christ will love all the saints, unconditionally, sacrificially. You know who I'm talking about when I say Chuck Colson? Those of you who are older, you remember he was the, kind of the hatchet man for President uh, Nixon during the Watergate scandal. And uh, things were not going well for him when he was uh, convicted. Here's a guy that used to be able to walk into the Oval Office whenever he wanted to. He was able to kind of call the shots for, for really uh, the, this country and, and for matters that, that, that had to do with, with the entire world. And now, and now he's convicted and behind bars in a federal prison. As a result, his marriage was on the rock. His wife wasn't sure she could take it any longer. 
She was struggling to stay married to him. And then he gets word that his son, his son has been arrested. Possession of drugs. And not only that, but many of the people he thought were his friends, he thought they were his friends. These are the people he socialized with. They had disenfranchised themselves from him. He was going through a really bad time. And during his worst days, the Lord provided Christian men who would come and pray with him, visit with him, and care for him. And one of them was a congressman. His name was Albert Quee. I don't know, you probably don't recognize that name. He was elected governor of Minnesota at one point. But uh, Quee's grandfather was the one who helped start the Republican Party back in the mid-1800s. Quee's grandfather is one of the guys that helped get President Lincoln elected as the first Republican president. And Quee went back and he found an old law on the books that allowed him to serve out the remainder of Colson's seven-month sentence. And he goes to Chuck and he tells him what he found. He says, it says it right here. They have to release you if I am, am willing to come and serve out the rest of your term, and I am willing. I want to take your place. Go home and repair your marriage and deal with your son and his drug issue. Go home. And Colson was very grateful, but he declined. He just couldn't do it. He couldn't allow this good man to subject himself to prison for something that he had done. But later, Chuck confessed that it was a turning point in his life. No question about it. This was the turning point in his life when a gracious Christian brother in Christ sought to relieve him of his pain by taking his place in prison. Could you have done that? See, that's what agape love looks like. I'm not talking about did you go and take somebody's place in prison. I'm not talking about the specific act. I'm talking about the specific kind of sacrificial behavior whereby you go out of your way, where it really costs you something. It costs you something to help one another. Not because that person deserves it. Chuck didn't deserve for Quee to do that for him. Why would Quee do it? It had nothing to do with whether or not Chuck deserved it. It had everything to do with who Quee was in Christ. Paul says, I've heard about you. I've heard about you. I've heard about that kind of love going on among you, that you love all the saints. How's that possible? I mean, look, some people are more lovable than others. And there are some saints who, I mean, God bless them. I mean, they're, they're, they're tough to love. I mean, if, if you're honest, there are those in the body of Christ with whom you connect well because of your common interest, but then there are others. There are others. God love them who require so much mercy and grace and patience and, quite frankly, long-suffering because they just, they do things, they say things that make it tough to not only love them, I mean, it's tough to even like them. Yet Paul says, we've heard of your love for all the saints. Is that even possible? John MacArthur points out that this doesn't mean that we are to have an emotional connection with everyone within the body of Christ. I mean, we, that's not possible. I mean, even Christ, when he was incarnate, he could not do that. 
I mean, do you think that Peter was, was not exhausting at times? Oh, listen, Lord, no, you cannot do that. I, I'm not going to allow that. Get behind me, Satan. Who do you think you are, Peter? Or what about those boys, uh, James and John? Why did Christ nickname them the sons of thunder? Because they were easy to love? No. No, they were anything but easy to love. And how easy do you think it is to love a zealot? Simon the zealot. This revolutionary insurrectionist. Did Christ treat all of the disciples the same because he had the same emotional connection with each of them? No. Did he allow all the disciples to go to the Mount of Transfiguration? No, just Peter, James, John. Did he, did he make his first resurrection appearance to all of the disciples? No. Peter and then to some of the other disciples and then later to Thomas. Did Christ love all of them? Yes. Yes, he did. So agape love does not require emotional connections. Agape love is a genuine concern that meets the needs of others without partiality. Look, if I only respond to the needs of John Atterbury because he is my good friend, because we have connected over the last 40 years, and I don't show that same concern for others because I haven't known them as long or because I, I, I don't know them as well, then am I any different than the rest of the world? I mean, people of the world love those who love them, right? Those who, with whom they have made that emotional connection. But Paul is saying, I've heard of the agape love that you've demonstrated for all the saints. And what motivates them to love without partiality? What causes them to behave like Christ towards somebody that they may not even know that well? Quee didn't even know Chuck Colson that well. He got to know him after he went to prison. What is it? It's the hope that Christ laid up for them in heaven. What does that mean? Does that mean that by loving one another, they hope to impress the Lord enough to save them? No, 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 no. The word hope here does not mean their salvation is a possibility. I mean, we use that word hope like that. You know, I hope it rains today. And it might, it might not. But that's not what Alpina means here. That's the word for hope. He's not saying this is a possibility. He's saying this is a done deal. Though heaven and earth pass away, it doesn't change the fact that Christ died to the justice of God for my redemption and ascended to the Father, securing my salvation. He says it's been laid up, means it's been reserved. It's like when you purchase a gift for your child and you wrap it and you put it in the closet until their birthday arrives. It was bought by you, secured by you, and prepared by you. That's what he's saying here. Our hope is not wishful thinking. It's been stamped with his blood. Laid up is in the perfect tense, meaning it happened in the past. It's a done deal. As Christ said, it is finished. Laid up for you in heaven means it's already accepted in the presence of the Father. So if you ask somebody, are you going to heaven when you die? Do you believe that you are saved in Christ? You say, well, I hope so. You know, I've tried to do my best. 
That's not this hope. That kind of hope is a questionable possibility that's relying upon what you have done, what you have done. And you're never sure if you've done enough or you're good enough. The best that you can hope for is to die with your fingers crossed. Now, being in Christ means we're secure. We are secure because of what he's done. So the question is, can I lose my salvation? No. That's like asking, can Christ lie? If Christ can lie about it being finished, then yeah, I'm in trouble. But if he told the truth, then I am secure. Their hope is in what Christ purchased for them when they were still at enmity with him, while they were yet still sinners, as Paul says to the Romans. And it's because of their hope in Christ. That's what causes them to love all the saints unconditionally and sacrificially, just as they've been loved. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, meaning the best that I can do, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. It's on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. You know who wrote that? Anybody? Edward Moat. So, well, who's he? He's a kid that grew up on the streets of London where his parents uh, managed a pub. That's London, England. And uh, Moat said at one point that he was so ignorant, so ignorant, that he didn't even believe there was a God until a friend began sharing the gospel with him. And he said it just sounded too fantastic to be real. And he said, and then the Lord took what he was being taught and the Holy Spirit brought it to life within him. And though he grew up to become an excellent cabinet maker, the best there was, his heart was in writing hymns. And at the age of 55, he retires from cabinet making and goes into the ministry and serves the Lord till he died at 81, 26 years. Their faith in Christ resulted in love for all the saints because their faith in Christ is rooted in the hope, the hope that Christ secured for them. I think it was Stott who said, our love is not to be the victim of our emotions. Our love is to be the servant of our convictions. And so verse 5, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel. You know, that's where we get the expression, it's the gospel truth. That's where this comes from. Euangelion, it's where we get the word evangelize. It's the technical term for good news. Do you know where that came from? Do you know the etymology of that word? It comes out of the Greek culture, actually. Back in the first century, uh, Greece was divided into city-states. Each city-state had their own army, and at times they would declare war on one another. Aren't you glad we've kind of grown out of that? Don't have to deal with that anymore. But back then they did it. They would declare war. And in that day there was no internet. There was no television, no radio, no telegraph. So news was always delivered in person. And so all the people within their city state, you know, they would always be looking at the horizon. And when they finally saw this messenger with a laurel wreath on his head, carrying a palm branch, they knew what that meant. That's euangelion. Man, that's good news. 
Victory has been secured. Here he comes to deliver it in person. And thus this Greek word became associated with the greatest news on earth, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Because there is no better news for man who's created in the image of God and has earned God's wrath through his sin. A wrath he cannot satisfy. So the best news that he can ever hear is about the propitiating and atoning sacrifice that was accomplished at Calvary. How it delivered him from his bondage and penalty for sin. Now, where will you find any better news than that? And so, so how can Paul, how can Paul, who's never met these people, he's never been to their church, how can Paul know for sure that these new Christians are real? They're real. How does he know they're born again in Christ? How can he be so confident? How does he know the preaching of Epaphras and Philemon has resulted in their redemption? How does he know? Epaphras leaves Colossae, goes to Rome where Paul is is waiting in prison, 62 AD. He gives him an update. And he says, he's not just saying, I know these people believe. You know what he's telling? This is how the people are living. This is how they're living. They're living out their faith by loving all the saints because of the hope that is laid up for them in heaven, in Christ Jesus. And so what causes Paul to celebrate? Here are the reasons. Here's why he celebrates in his, in his giving a thanksgiving in prayer to the Lord. Thank you, Lord. What are, what are you thanking me for? The faith that you have brought about in the heart of these individuals in Christ. That's number one. Number two, that faith that has resulted in their love for all the saints. They're not just proclaiming to be Christians. They are proving they are Christians. It's awesome. Number three, it's because of the hope that Christ has laid up for them in heaven. Number four, due to the gospel that came to them from these false teachers, the the gospel that came to them before these false teachers came in and began to bombard them with all this nonsense. This is the reason they're holding up against these Jewish rituals, against angel worship, against Gnostic nonsense. They're holding up against that stuff because their faith is in Christ. They have a love for all the saints and their hope is the finished work of Christ at Calvary and is due to the word of truth, the gospel that Epaphras has taught them. It's because of the gospel they can hold up to the lies that they're being told which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit, and increasing as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. In other words, if it is true that our redemption is a divine act of a holy God, secured in Christ, if that is true, as set forth in the gospel, let me ask you this, can it go to anyone? Can it? You think your spouse is beyond hope? You think that co-worker is beyond hope? Let me ask you, where does the gospel begin? It began in Jerusalem. Where did it go? Well, it went throughout all of Judea and then into Samaria. And you know what? As those people at Pentecost return home, the gospel spreads throughout the known world, converting Jew and Gentile, Roman soldiers, even goes all the way up to the steps of the palace to Caesar himself before it spreads throughout the uttermost parts of the world to places like Kentucky, 
which would be the ends of the earth to an ancient Jew. See, some think that this is hyperbole. I don't. Some think that, 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 that Paul is using hyperbole when he talks about the gospel as bearing fruit and increasing in the whole world. Really? Yeah. I think he means exactly what he said. The present indicative form of the verb is, esten, points to the present and continuous reality of the gospel. Just as the gospel was having a continuous impact upon those in Asia Minor, there at the church at Colossae, by 62 AD, that good news was bearing fruit wherever it was proclaimed, throughout the whole world, the whole world. And how complete, sufficient, and free was the message of God's grace? Well, let me ask you this. Who was the first person converted by the gospel? Who was it? I'll give you a hint. He was a thief and a murderer, condemned by God and by man. He was nailed to a cross, receiving the justice he deserved when divine grace comes to him as he witnesses Christ bearing the just wrath his sin deserved. And without a great deal of knowledge, and without really any life left on earth, let me ask you, what, what did this guy contribute to his salvation? What did he contribute? According to the mustard seed of faith that he receives from Christ, he declares, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. That's it? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty tough. It's pretty tough when you're nailed to a cross to, to do too many other things to earn God's favor through your works. He does the only thing that he can do. He cries for mercy. Remember me, Lord. Remember me. What did Christ say? Today. Today. Today? You mean there's no purgatory I have to go through? You mean there are no indulgences that I have to purchase here before I die? No. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Why? Because your faith in me is sufficient. Because my atonement for you is complete. It is finished. And there is nothing we can do to improve upon the divine regeneration that comes not by our works, but by his grace. See, that's the good news that bears fruit in increasing measure from the first day you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. Do you see that phrase, just as you learned it? You might want to underline that. You know why? That shows you the truth. Truth does not change. The gospel is not to be altered by overeducated seminary professors or by well-meaning pastors, or by misled members of various denominations. If they don't get it right, just as it was taught by Epaphras, who got it from Paul, who was given it Theonustos, God-breathed by the Holy Spirit, if that's not where it comes from, then it's not the Word of God. Because Christ said so. John 16, when I leave, I'll send the spirit of truth and he will guide you into how much truth? He will guide you into all truth. So if anybody comes after 90 AD when John, the last apostle dies, claiming to have a new revelation, and they did, 
It's not just today. It wasn't just in the 1800s with, with Joseph Smith and the Mormons and so forth. It wasn't just in the 1800s with Jehovah's Witnesses. It's not just in the 20th century, the 21st century. This goes all the way back. I think it was 170 AD. There was a guy who claimed to be a Christian. He, he was coming out of an Asiatic cult. And he was claiming that he was converted to Christ. His name was Montanus. Not Joe Montana. I don't even know that they're related. But it's Montanus. And he claimed to be able to speak in the spirit through ecstatic utterances. And that he had received divine revelation. That claimed that Christ would return soon. To establish a new Jerusalem. Where? In Phrygia. Right there in Asia Minor. Where the, the Colossian church was located. And folks, this was before... This was before the canonization of the New Testament scriptures. So let me ask you this. How were those Christians able to know whether or not Montanus was telling them the truth or whether or not he was lying? How do they know that what he said was what he actually experienced or was he what Christ had warned them about in Matthew 7? That there would be those who would come and they'll look like sheep, but inwardly they will be ravenous wolves. How do they know? What Montana said and how he lived and the lies he told, they contradicted what they had learned, the truth they had learned from Epaphras, who received it from Paul, an eyewitness of the resurrection of Christ, who made him an apostle by the will of God and gave him truth, Theonoustos, God breathed. And through the centuries, Hundreds of false prophets have made outlandish claims contradicting the gospel, which is the reason we have New Testament scripture. That's the reason it was canonized. And listen, you know, the, the critics will say, well, these church councils got together and they voted on, you know, should Romans be included or I vote no on Romans. That's not what happened. No church council made the scriptures theonoustos. They couldn't. They had no authority to. So what did they do? All they did in the canonization of the scripture, they just recognized and identified for the church that which was in harmony with all the Lord had given them in the Old Testament. That which was recognized and identified that was consistent with all that Christ taught. That which was recognized and identified that, that, that was uh, in harmony with what the apostles had taught the apostolic authority as Christ had established it. They recognized and identified that which was 100% accurate without error. I mean, Paul wrote lots of letters that were not in the Bible because they weren't theonoustos. Well, does the Lord still speak through men today? Well, of course. Of course he does. But the message is always consistent with his word that was given by apostolic authority as Christ gifted and commissioned them to be foundational for his body of believers on earth, the church, Ephesians 2.20. You know, the book of Revelation, given through John, by the way, that looks past the church age to the final judgment, ends this way. Here's how it ends. If anyone adds 
or takes away from the words of this book, the Lord will take away his part of the book of life. The Bible contains everything we need to know about life, how to live, how to die, how regeneration or justification or sanctification or salvation occurs. And if you deny it or you falsify it, you try to alter it, he says you have no part in the eternal life of heaven. Did you realize the same was true in the Old Testament? There was a similar warning given at the end of the Pentateuch, the, the, the five books of law. What's the last book? Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos, the second law before they go into the promised land, right? At the end of Deuteronomy, he says you don't add, you don't take away what the Lord has said. Well, what, what about the rest of, of the Old Testament? Well, he says in Proverbs 30, repeats it again in the wisdom books. There's the warning. Don't add, don't take away, don't distort it, or you will be proven a liar. And so we begin this study in God's word by celebrating, as Paul did, the grace of God that brings us together, brothers in Christ. The faith, love, and hope that we have in Christ. We celebrate the truth of the gospel as given to us by the Lord through the apostles, commissioned by Christ as we learn it from faithful pastors. And so what are the takeaways from this text? Well, the first thing that I saw was that Christian virtues of faith, love, and hope, those are always intertwined, always. Faith in Christ always results in love for those within his body. And we're not talking about an emotional attraction, but a spiritual attitude. It's not about how we feel about somebody. It's about what we believe about Christ. And because of what we believe about Christ, that agape love that's unconditional and sacrificial causes us to meet the needs of others for God's glory. I was told right before this service uh, began, uh, John Hayberry told me that, that Luke Cook, one of the families in our church, has been coming here for years. They live down in Harrodsburg. And Luke's got equipment and so forth down there. And we were, uh, had some issues back here in the, the back of our, our property with the water retention and so forth. Luke brings his equipment from Harrodsburg up here and goes back there and fixes all of that for us. He's probably upset that I told you that because he didn't want anybody to know. That was between him and the Lord. But he did that out of, out of his love for the church. Where'd that come from? Out of his faith in Christ and the hope that he has in Christ. The second thing that we see is Christian motivation for meeting needs is always rooted in the hope that's been secured by Christ. A hope of which we are absolutely confident. Confident. Christ has reconciled us with the Father. That's what motivates us to meet the needs of others for his glory. The third thing is that Christian hope comes by means of the gospel that bears fruit in increasing measure. Increasing measure. Wherever God's grace is proclaimed and experienced, Christians have a cause to celebrate, to celebrate. You know, it was said of Albert Brumley's I'll Fly Away. I've heard that it's the most recorded gospel song ever. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I've heard. He wrote that back in 1929 when he was working in the cotton fields of Oklahoma. 
uh, not an ideal job, not an easy job, but one that he did with great joy. Why? Because he was clinging to the hope that was his in Christ, that one day, one day, he's leaving this place. He'll fly away to be with him. And so he's picking cotton in Oklahoma, and he's writing some glad morning, when this life is over, I'll fly away to a home on God's celestial shore. I'll fly away. I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. In the morning when I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Can you sing that with confidence? Can you? Is your faith in Christ celebrated through your love of others because of the hope that Christ purchased for you? Is the gospel, the truth of Christ, is it continuing to bear fruit in increasing measure in your life? If not, or you have any questions, you, you know you can always go to the connect table and there will be somebody there that will connect you with those who have an answer to your questions. Or as Spurgeon would say, you know, you can always meet me in my study. I'll be glad to meet with you. Um, why don't we just pray? Why don't we just stand and pray? Lord, we just want to thank you for giving us so many causes to celebrate your goodness and grace. So many causes. Lord, we pray that the good news of what you've done in the lives of your saints, those you've cleansed by the atoning death of Christ, that, that, that will, it will just continue to bear fruit through their love for all the saints, how they serve one another to the glory of your name. And Lord, for any this day whose hearts may be hard, just hard, who not only maybe hold contempt for you, but maybe malice towards others, Lord, we pray, we pray for you to mercifully heal them by your spirit through the conviction of your word. Lord, we pray for that this morning. In Christ's name, amen.